Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. Okay, so we continue this week with our discussion of World War One. this time looking at All Quiet on the Western Front, based on the classic novel by Eric Maria Remarque. So we, we've already talked a little bit. We, we've been in World War One for a while here, and we've talked a little bit about the causes, but I wanted to just kind of read through a kind of a timeline here. I'm just going to give you kind of an abridged version of a timeline I found online, just because... Unlike a lot of other conflicts, World War I is just kind of more vague. For as big as a war as it was, it's still even kind of debated. I mean, the opening of the Wikipedia entry says the causes of World War I remain controversial, you know, to this day. On the Wikipedia article for the causes of World War I, because there is a whole one just for the causes. Correct. And they have that little graphic that shows the Venn diagrams of who is aligned with who. Oh, right. I, I mean, it just... Even simplified in a in diagram <laughs> form, which is actually pretty helpful, it's still super complicated. Yes, I, and I also watched a couple of uh, YouTube videos today just to try to get the simple version of World War One. Even the simple version was like tearing through it in you know twelve or thirteen minutes. And did you watch the crash course? No, I, well, I probably have before, but it, I watched. Uh, uh, I forget what the channel I saw today, but it was enlightening but also a lot of stuff i was kind of already familiar with so so again just kind of running through quickly uh the timelines everybody kind of knows the initial i guess match was lit with the assassination of the austrian archduke franz ferdinand by serbians and of course it is kind of complicated to what extent those serbian people may have been may or may not have been connected to their government but anyway so basically after this austria is mad at serbia and basically says they're not going to put up with any of their shenanigans going forward and, and has going to have a lot of demands for Serbia here. Germany lets it be known that they have they are unconditionally supporting Austria. And it's kind of Austria-Hungary combined as kind of one thing, one entity at this point. The French president uh, speaks up and just advocates, not caution, but prudence. And just basically just the French president comes in and says, hey, calm down, everybody. But then Austria sends their, their ultimatums to Serbia, which... I can't even find like a super detailed list, but the whole idea is it's, it's almost like a fake ultimatum. It's actually similar to like Zulu, where the, the British were sending uh, terms to the, the Zulu tribe that they knew they would never actually meet because they wanted a war. That's basically exactly, what's happening yeah, here with Austria. They are sending Serbia demands that they know they're not going to meet because they are trying to pick a war, not realizing, of course, the extent to which it will reach. That's one of the reasons that it's it's so hard to kind of like place blame on anybody um, as far as like who started, you know, World War One right. is so Austria Hungary, they can kind of, you know, be shown to be at fault because they provided these ultimatums that were so harsh that they knew that they were going to be rejected. But the only reason that they did that is because they had these assurances from Germany, like, hey, if you go to war with Serbia, then Russia's probably going to get involved and we'll back you up if that happens. But they only said that because they thought that maybe Austria would try and not go to war. But it kind of emboldened Austria to be able to be super reckless and give out this super strict ultimatum. Meanwhile, the whole time, Russia is doing pre-mobilizations to prepare for war. Because at that time, Russia, this is like right after 
the Russo-Japanese War that we True. talked about in uh, Battleship Potemkin. And so Russia on the on the world stage is, is kind of eager to prove that it's still a world power. So almost, you know, is, is also kind of looking for a fight as well. And so it's, and then it's kind of interesting, like, you know, between the end of June, when Franz Ferdinand is assassinated at the beginning of August, Austria is the first person to declare war, but they only declare war on Serbia. And then Russia gets involved. So then Germany declares war on Russia and then moves to uh, attack France by marching troops through Belgium, which means that then France and the UK get involved. And it's like, you know, this, this kind of domino effect that isn't really any one nation's fault. Right. I was, as, as you kind of go through this, it's, it's hard not to just see a parallel of basically it's like you got a group of like 15 middle schoolers that have kind of broken up into like two factions and <laughs> are like getting into an ever increasing brawl that just started with a couple of the smaller ones picking on each other. And if you're watching it from as an outsider, you're basically just thinking all y'all are stupid. Just knock it off. And quit trying to yes. like even like you said with Russia trying to act like they're the big guy. It's like everyone's it's all this like bluff and bluster that just led to one of the most devastating conflicts in human history, and it's all just so ridiculous. Which of course is going to get into this film itself, which is an anti-war film, and just discussing the futility of it all and what does what does the common soldier have to do with any of this? The you know the soldiers in the film talk about having no beef with the British or the French or anybody. They're just kind of out here for the pride of the country because. The powers that be in their country said that's what they should be feeling. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit there. But uh, yes, you basically uh, worked your way through through the timeline with just kind of the, the ultimatums and the taking turns of declaring war, which, yes, Russia pops in to help, and then Germany sends an ultimatum to Russia and declares war on them. And then the Ottoman Empire is kind of secretly recruited by Germany. Germany then declares war on France. Britain declares war on Germany. Basically, Britain was almost kind of willing to stay out of it, but because Germany was almost kind of like not acting in good faith, like, you know, basically invading neutral countries like Belgium to get an advantage. Britain's like, okay, well, if you're not going to fight fair, now we're going to jump in. And again, it goes back to that middle school fight where Britain's a little more hanging back. Like, honestly, how this plays out. Okay, okay, no, no. Uh, Germany just pulled a knife. I'm going to step in because uh, they're not fighting fair. So excluding the U.S., basically going from the assassination of the Archduke to Britain getting involved, you're talking... Five weeks tops. So all this escalated very quickly, and everyone kind of thought it was just going to be this short conflict. So getting into the movie itself. So this was the Best Picture winner of 1930, again, based on the book. And it was also kind of cool, a lot of these, you know, movies, old movies that are based on these classic books, well, a lot of them, it's just kind of like today, where it was the hot new book at the time. Like this book came out, actually, what was the exact year? Yeah, this book came out in late 1928, and then so basically within 18 months, you have have the movie out, just like you would see today. So I'll go ahead and mention the author here real quick first. So, we, so I mentioned um, Remark. Basically, I, I, it's not exactly autobiographical, but it is definitely directly based on his experience as a young German soldier in the trenches of World War One, and just by kind of being disillusioned with the whole thing, which is basically actually kind of like the main word that this movie brought to mind for me. This whole movie is about disillusionment and kind of the loss of innocence as you go from a proud young patriot willing to go fight and die maybe for your country to just realizing the futility of all of it and having your whole world shattered. So the film opens with, and I'm going to kind of read, a, actually I'm going to read an excerpt from the book here in a second, but uh, 
the film opens with their teacher. They're in class. They're all basically like high school juniors and seniors or whatever. And their teacher is just firing them up with all this patriotic rhetoric. And it's not even necessarily that vitriolic. It is just kind of all about hey, you know, your country needs you, you are our best hope to win in this conflict and prove ourselves and just the glory and the honor that is associated with this that convinces all the boys to go and sign up. And, of course, it's not long before they're in the trenches and they're seeing their their, their classmates dead. And it's just like, holy cow, we were just kind of like basically having a pep rally at school and now a few months later so-and-so is literally dead like that's his dead body now wait what's going on who are we even fighting like like as soon as they step off the train basically right and yeah they you know there's the the artillery fire and they lose that guy like right off the bat and that's kind of like the beginning of oh man this is like this is real and because it doesn't really discuss a specific historical event, it's just kind of broadly discussing the horrors of war and almost even intentionally so like I, i think they even go to almost I guess not go out of their way, but they basically make a point to not mention any specific battles or any specific generals. It's all just chaos. It's intentionally chaotic and dis, uh, discombobulated and just kind of, yeah, it's just horrible. And it's just horrible over and over again. And they get little bits of reprieve and you kind of see, you know, how important food is and how scarce food is. And that's actually part of the reality of what uh, ended up being a big problem for the, the German war effort both uh, the civilians and the the troops were having a hard time getting enough food. I'm going to go ahead and read an excerpt from the actual book, All Quiet on the Western Front, just because I I read this book uh, last year, and this just floored me when I read this, and it kind of ties in with what you're saying. So basically, the narrator here is reflecting on basically how their teachers and all the adults in their life who were talking so highly of war let them down. For us lads of 18, they ought to have been mentors and guides to the world of maturity, the world of work, of duty, of culture, of progress, to the future. We often made fun of them and played jokes on them, but in our hearts we trusted them. The idea of authority which they represented was associated in our minds with a greater insight and a more humane wisdom. But the first death we saw shattered this belief. We had to recognize that our generation was more to be trusted than theirs. They surpassed us only in phrases and in cleverness. The first bombardment showed us our mistake, and under it the world as they had taught it to us broke into pieces. While they continued to write and talk, we saw the wounded and dying. While they taught the duty to one's country is the greatest thing, we already knew that death throws are stronger. But for all that, we were no mutineers, no deserters, no cowards. They were very free with all these expressions. We loved our country as much as they. We went courageously into every action but also we distinguished the false from true. We had suddenly learned to see, and we saw that there was nothing of their world left. We were all at once terribly alone, and alone we must see it through. Um, So kind of a long effort there, but I I read that a year ago, and I remembered what page it was on. I opened right to it. Like It just just kind of floored me. So, uh, well, page 12, depending on which copy you look at. Anyway, but, but, but to me, that just sums up the whole movie, the whole book, the whole anti-war thing. And I even wrote in my notes, just war is war is, is stupid. And I know I'm talking to a Marine here. But uh, <laughs> just the idea of because countries have economic interests and stuff. It's like I get the idea. I, World War II makes sense. You basically had the Nazis literally taking over Europe. And we didn't even know the extent of the, of the Jewish genocide. But... They're literally taking over Europe and had to be stopped. Like, that makes sense. 
World War One is the opposite of that in the sense that no one really knew why we were fighting. We were all just showing off, and it was ridiculous, utterly ridiculous and pointless. That's like one of the one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is when they're talking about, you know, why are we here anyway? And someone's like, oh, you know, because France and England started the war. And then they're they're talking about countries fighting each other. And they're like, oh, the, the forest from one country is fighting the meadows of another country. I, I forget what the exact <laughs> right, quote exactly. is. Right, exactly. Like, countries can't get mad at each other. Yeah. Country, yeah, countries are just land masses. What do you mean the countries are fighting each other? Right. They're talking about, you know, their, their leader is... He says, that, well, they should just rope off a field and just throw all the, the world leaders at it. And, uh, you know, they can just fight each other with clubs and then none of us would, would even have to be here. But unfortunately, these guys are the clubs that those leaders are fighting each other with. True. That's a good way to put it because that's not mentioned directly in, in the film. But that's uh, you're right. You're exactly right. I had never seen this before. Um, so it's interesting to see this movie from 1930 uh, that's dealing with issues that we still talk about when we are talking about like veterans coming home today. Things like PTSD, yes. things like phantom limb syndrome. We see that twice in the movie with guys that get limbs amputated that then talk about, oh, my foot hurts right. and their, their foot isn't there. Let's see what else? Oh, the uh, the boots sequence. I thought was oh, uh, yes was it was kind of like it, it was it was basically Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, but it was like the traveling boots of war where the one guy dies yeah. and so the next guy gets the nice pair of boots until he dies. Yeah, it almost kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I, I wasn't really expecting that, and then like it happened. It was a little incongruous with the rest of the story, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, I thought that was pretty impactful. And then the foxhole scene with the French soldier. Oh, wow. Where he's sitting in the foxhole and, you know, basically is like crunched up against one side as all these French soldiers are jumping over him. And one guy notices him, jumps in and he stabs him. And the guy doesn't die right away, which is another thing that like war movies, you know, from this time and and even since, you know, don't necessarily accurately portray a lot of times like, Oh, I stab you. You're dead. And it's right. like right away. But this guy, you know, he stabs him. And the guy's not able to fight back anymore. But now him and this other, our main character, Paul, who's German, is stuck in this foxhole with this dying French guy that he just stabbed. And he's stuck there with him all night. And is basically, he tries to like nurse him back to health, kind of. He's like giving him like a drink and stuff. And, right. And then he, after the guy dies, Paul is like yelling at this guy's dead body to like forgive him for for right. killing him he says yeah he says he'll go I'll, I'll track down your wife i'll track down your parents i'll let them know that i don't know just what happened to you i guess and and yeah uh, and, and he's he's like he's like yeah i'll you know i'll find your family i'll make sure they're taken care of just forgive me right right he desperately wants that forgiveness of the of the man he killed who he who again he had no no beef with at all they were just kind of forced together by circumstance yep so, I, I, so a couple of other plot points in the movie. Uh, that's a good one. There is a scene where they go and have the little dalliance with the French girls, which is interesting too. That basically the girls are kind of have want to have nothing to do with them until they have food, which again kind of shows just the the resource problem that there was at the time. 
Yeah. And and side little note, this is a pre-production code movie. So the implication that they slept with the girls is I think just a little higher than it would have been had this movie been made 10 years later. But that's just kind of a little Hollywood note. Yes. So, okay. So then kind of near the end. So Paul just gets to go back on leave and kind of revisit everything. And this is kind of what helps bookend the whole story because he goes back to that classroom with the same teacher who was kind of the rabble rouser. And I think the implication is that a few years have actually passed, which I didn't really catch that until he kind of went back and they kind of said that basically he went and enlisted right at the start of the war. And now we're kind of getting to the point of the war where it's not going so great. But, you know, maybe the the German public hasn't yet come to grips with that reality. So he kind of even basically doesn't want to talk. And the teacher kind of goes him into it. And Paul basically says everything we've been talking about to these class of high schoolers, how it, it's all pointless. And they start calling him a coward. And, of course, yes. these are obviously no one who's ever, you know, picked up a weapon in their life calling the guy who's killed and seen his friends killed and been in the trenches calling him a coward. And you just the, – the indignation that I felt was palpable. And so I just can't even imagine why people actually had to go through this. And then, of course, later he's in the bar and he hears these older guys talking about, like, well, we just need to push on through to Paris. Like, it's like you're about to lose this war. You guys have no idea what you're talking about. And just – and that just – basically Paul was like, as horrible as the war is – I'd just rather go and deal with what I know than come back here and dealing with all you fools. And it just it's just kind of like more devastating for him to be at home than it was to be in the trenches. Right. Uh, when he gets back to the front and he's talking to Kaczynski and he's like, yeah, there's there's nothing for me at home now. Like, this is where I belong. You know, right. this is the only thing that's left for me is war, is the front, the trenches. Little echoes of Hurt Locker there, if you think about it then, huh? Kind of, yeah. With him just kind of yeah. not, not knowing whatever what else to do. So yeah, so he goes back, a lot, you know, a lot of his friends are kind of gone. He's kind of gets the one last guy. That, and of course, that's kind of a heart-wrenching scene there too, where he goes kind of out into the field to meet up with a buddy. And as they're walking back, the guy's wounded. So Paul starts to carry him and he's, you know, he's chatting to him, not realizing that the guy got hit again while he was on Paul's back. Paul basically inadvertently used him as a human shield. And when he gets back to base or to camp or whatever, the guy's dead and Paul's just like, Oh, uh, you know, what else can I do? A little thing, and I think the book, if I remember right, I feel like the book built this up a little bit. So when he's when he's back home, he does have a good moment with his sister where they just kind of talk about their childhood and collecting butterflies. And it kind of is brought up a little bit too much at the end, whereas I think in the book, they actually bring it up earlier, which makes it more impactful. So basically then he's, he's in the trenches and he sees a butterfly just outside the trench. And then we see a French sniper kind of keeping an eye on his point in the trench. And then... The famous last shot of the movie is Paul, just Paul's hand reaching for a butterfly, and then you hear the sniper rifle, and then his hand just goes still, and that's basically yeah. the last shot of of the film. And it's kind of kind of like, and that's what I remember. So I'd seen this movie oh probably ten years ago, and that image was what was just kind of seared in my mind. Like if I didn't remember anything else, I remembered the hand reaching for the butterfly and going suddenly still. Like that was kind of the iconic moment there. So the Oscars were kind of different back in the day here. So movies didn't necessarily get as many nominations. There probably just wasn't as many categories, I guess, as part of it. So All Caught on the Western Front was just nominated for four Oscars. But again, it was just kind of a little different back then. So one for Best Picture, one for Best Director, and then was also nominated for Writing and Cinematography. But I just don't think they had all the technical awards back then. So I don't know if there even was like a sound award and all that stuff to get nominated for, which probably makes a difference. The director isn't one I'm super familiar with. Lewis uh, Milestone, 
who did also also do the Mutiny on the Bounty from the 1960s with Marlon Brando, um, and did also win a Best Director award a few years before this movie for some comedy I had never heard of, and even looked like there was two directing categories because he got it for specifically for comedy directing or comedy film. Going back to the Oscars real fast, there were apparently only eight categories back then, so it oh. got nominated for half the categories. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That's uh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically best picture, best director, best actor and actress, best writing, best sound recording, art direction, and cinematography. Those. That's all of the. Okay. All of the uh, categories for the the nineteen thirty Academy Awards. And so All Quiet on the Western Front, pretty successful in that it got nominated for half of the categories that existed at the time. That's true. And honestly, I'm surprised. Uh, the The guy playing Paul, I thought, did a great job. I'm surprised to see there to not see him get a nomination. Uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't look like he did. So the aftermath of the war in general. So it was devastating to Germany and, of course, specifically, and again, as we're kind of familiar with, because it, it will lead us into World War II, although we're still a ways away on our timeline from that. Ultimately, Germany was scapegoated, I mean, kind of like you talked about, partly rightfully so, partly probably exaggeratedly so, because obviously if you are the victor, you get to basically pin the blame, and they kind of saw Germany as being more powerful, and so I think just being as the mo- the strongest guy on the losing side, you got the blame, because basically if you hadn't backed Austria, we wouldn't have been in this mess in the first place. So lots of lots of sanctions and rules were put on Germany, and they were already kind of devastated. The, the one thing I thought was interesting to note was how the British uh, and whoever else had basically set up a blockade to prevent a lot of imports from coming into Germany. So basically Germany, who relied very, very heavily on imports, was just kind of cut off from the world to the point that Tons and tons of people were, were were dying of starvation and other things. Like I have no like basically like half a million civilians in Germany lost their life during this time, kind of during the war and immediately thereafter. Uh, so basically, what was established the 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 Kaiser did abdicate, and we uh, get into the period of Germany, basically post the Kaiser and World War One, and then pre the Nazis taking over. Is so you have this about what 10, 15 years in Germany where it's the Weimar Republic. And we will actually get into that in, oh, a month or so when we talk about Cabaret at kind of the end of that period. So I'll kind of leave more of that for now. But that's kind of going to be the uh, intermediate period there for Germany. And so the other huge world event that kind of tacked in right at the end of World War One there is the giant flu pandemic of 1918, uh, also called the Spanish flu, which I actually just found this out today. So I'd heard of the Spanish flu. But basically, the only reason it was called the Spanish flu is because... Did it kill a lot of people in Spain? Well, not any more so. so. So basically, the Spanish media was just more open with talking about it versus a lot of people currently engaged in the war were basically suppressing their media from even talking about it. So Spain was talking about it being an issue before anyone else was. So it led to the false thought that it had actually started in Spain. But that's actually not the case. It's just basically Spain was the first people to talk about it. So it became the Spanish flu. That's really the only reason it was called the Spanish flu. But the numbers from this are just insane. I mean, obviously, it's hard to tell who exactly died from the flu and who died for other reasons. So the estimates are pretty wide. But basically, it's an estimated 
50 to 100 million deaths worldwide just from the flu. And again, that does not count, you know, any kind of other violence or starvation deaths associated with World War One. So at the tail end of World War One, you're getting into 50 to 100 million flu deaths keeping in mind the world's population was much lower at the time. So that was basically 3 to 5% of the world's entire population died from the flu right on the tail end of the most devastating war in world history up to that point. And again, this is basically 100 years ago. I mean, not not that crazy long ago. Which there was, it was what, it was like how many killed total in World War One? Oh, in the war itself. Well, doing the math, almost 10 million. That sounds no. That sounds about right. Now, is that just soldiers, or is that civilians, or is that you know that's dead or wounded? It says, that's military. That's Allied military dead plus Central Powers military dead. So right, so that yeah. doesn't count the civilians, right? Which again was uh, was pretty extensive. Oh, oh, okay, and then civilian dead another seven and a half million. Oh my gosh! So seventeen million people. Right. So, but then again, then the flu was at least triple that. So if you think about it that way, it, it's even crazier so it's interesting too if you go to the wikipedia page for the spanish flu the picture is actually fort riley kansas and it shows a barracks with a bunch of uh soldiers camped at fort riley there that were sick with the spanish flu what's also fascinating about the spanish flu that kind of made it unique is so obviously most of the time you have a flu outbreak it's going to kill the very young and the very old and they even call that kind of like a a u-shaped you know if you're if you're going to graph it well, this was just kind of unique in the sense that the, the graph was a W. So, yes, the young and the old were susceptible. But then, for some reason, like, people that should have been their prime were also the next most susceptible group. So, like, if you're under 5, you're dead. If you're over 80, you're dead. And if you're in your 20s, you're dead. Like, yeah. just bizarrely. Like, I don't, I've never actually heard an explanation for that, but kind of fascinating. So, get your flu shots, everyone. I've never actually had a flu shot. <laughs> I should admit that, but like I've only I've only had the flu like once as an adult period, and yeah. it was bad. But I've also never had I don't know I've never had a flu shot, and I'm not anti-vaccine by any means, but <laughs> I'm also I don't get the flu, so why do I need yeah. a flu shot for? I did I did said I did have it once a few years ago, and basically I mean I didn't know what it was exactly. I was just like I need to not leave the house for a week. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like death. But other than that, I've never had anything remotely close to the flu since like fifth grade or something. But yeah, vaccinations are good. Yeah, I, I don't think I've had a flu shot since I got out of the Marine Corps, but I I got one every year. Actually, a couple times I got it twice a year because, you know, there would be like you would get it and then different strains. Uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't get documented correctly. And so you would show up on a list of like, hey, these are the people that still need to get flu shots it's like no man i already already got my flu shot and they're like oh well does it say so on the paper well no <laughs> well then nope. looks like you're gonna go get another flu shot <laughs> okay so yeah that's basically why what i wanted to cover with uh with world war one we will get in next week to the russian perspective and a little bit how world war one happened from there in but more specifically how it transitions into the bolshevik revolution the ousting of the emperor and the imperial family there and the beginning of the soviet union with vladimir lenin and all that so next week tune in as we watch dr shivago 